Well, I agree with Taylor that we can never make too much of God. That is what he said when he reminded us that we celebrate the gospel every week. We're entering into spiritual warfare here and we proclaim the gospel. We're battling hell and Satan. He's reminding us, and I agree, that we can never make too much of God. We can, however, make too much of man. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if that's not happening in the church at large with our apparent preoccupation with celebrities, the sense of hero worship you get. I don't know if it's intentional, but it sure seems at times that we're making a lot about man and sometimes not enough about God. You know, when we give unnecessary credit uh, or assign power and authority, that really was never intended to be that horizontal. And so you, you, sometimes you look around and say, are we making too much of man and not enough of God? It's a legitimate question. The good news is this, that that's not a new phenomenon, all right? A church in the first century struggled with the very same thing. But thankfully, God interrupted their downward divisive spiral towards immaturity and their consistent wandering in immaturity with his church-changing perspective and truth. And it's recorded for us in a singular verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Have your Bibles there with you? Once you open them to 1 Corinthians 3 and put a finger on verse 6. And let's read the sixth of our but God verses, what we're calling these irresistible interruptions. Let's read this one for this week. It's our take-home verse. It's 1 Corinthians 3, 6. You're probably there by now. Read this out loud with me. Our but God verse for this week. Together, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, this singular verse is tucked inside of a passage that's relatively long. It begins back in chapter 2, actually goes through at least the end of 3. I want to take the more immediate context of verses 1 through 9, and I want to look at this passage from the angle of three players. The you the we, and God. And see how they're all involved in our spiritual growth and who plays what part. I think it'll help us leave our own immaturity and grow in the Lord. Now, I mentioned to you there are three players in these nine verses. They were you, we, and God. These are mentioned in verse nine. So jump to the end of these first nine verses and just let me show you where these three are mentioned very specifically, pointedly, and then we'll see how the, pa uh, the passage kind of unpacks and, and explains it. Look at verse 9. I'll read it for you. It says, For we are God's fellow workers. We'll understand more about who that is in a moment. You are God's field, God's building. So there you see the we and the you and God. So let's see how they all interact and, inter inter and, and work together in our growth. Can we? Let's dive in. First one is where he begins, and I want us to notice that between verses 1 and 4, he really addresses the first of these players, the you. In fact, in these first four verses, you's mentioned eight times. It's a simple pronoun, but it gives us the real emphatic understanding of what he's addressing. I'd encourage you to circle each time you see the word you in verses 1 through 4 as I read, 
Paul says this, but our brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Eight times Paul points his finger at the church. That's who the you is here, the Corinthian church. And he says to them, guys, you should be further along in your faith. Notice that there is a past tense going on here and a present tense. Look at your text again. He talks about a previous visit when he was with them, that he could, he could not address them as spiritual, but as infants. And so it seems to indicate that when his, on his first visit, many of these folks became Christians. They followed Christ. They trusted the gospel. But now, years later, he's writing again. He's hearing of them. And it seems like they're still acting the same way they were acting when they first became a Christian. That's why he says you're still acting like mere humans, like you're in the flesh. Now, this brings up a simple debate I want to just simply make you aware of. There are those who believe that these four verses are indicating that they're actually not born again. Words such as worldly or fleshly. I think the word flesh is used three times, the idea of being human. Some would say that indicates they really are not regenerate. I don't hold to that view. I see these as, as genuine brothers. In fact, he says in verse 1, I, brothers and sisters, he addresses them as that. But he says, I couldn't address you as spiritual. And so it seems like what he's saying is this. Yes, you are legitimately born again, but there's been no growth. And so you're still acting like you were when you were either unsaved or just newly saved. You're still acting like a baby, spiritually speaking. You're showing signs of infancy and not growth. The signs of that infancy, by the way, are division, jealousy, strife, campaigning for their champion, highlighting their favorite personality. Watch this, making much of man and less of God. So Paul says it's an indication you're, you're just not growing up in your faith. Maybe to help you get a better sense of these four verses, let me read for you a, an expanded paragraph, excuse me, an expanded paraphrase from the pillar commentary. I like the way the author words these verses kind of in his own way, giving us a sense of both the past and the present and what the writer's dealing with. Let me read this for you, a little long, but just follow with me, would you? Here's how one author would describe these first four verses in the church there. He says, brothers and sisters, in looking at your situation, I must make an additional distinction to that between the natural and the spiritual. At the time of my initial work among you several years ago, the time of your conversion and baby Christian status, I could not address you as spiritually mature people, but I was able to speak only as I would speak to those made of flesh, to worldly people, that is, as I would speak to mere infants in Christ, as those who have the spirit and thus a capacity for welcoming spiritual truth and experiencing spiritual growth, but as yet having limited experience of it. At that time and for that stage, I gave you milk to drink, food for babies, that is, elementary spiritual truth for baby Christians. 
When I was with you those 18 months, I did not give you solid food, food for adults. That is the wisdom of God. That is the, the spiritual truth for mature Christians. This was because you were not ready for solid food. But now some four or five years later, you are still not ready. So do you see what the verses are saying? Paul's looking for movement. He's expecting to see maturity, growth, and, and there's been none. And the sign that there's been no growth is this factious uh, division, the jealousy, the strife, the making much of men and the not making much of God. Now, who are these celebrities that they are making much of? Who are these champions, we'll call it, that they're celebrating and campaigning for? Well, two are mentioned here in verse four, as this first paragraph wraps up, it's Paul and Apollos. If you just go on down to verse 22, you'll find another one mentioned, and it's Peter. So I think we're safe to say that in the context of the Corinthian ministry, there were three people who comprised the we. It's Peter, Paul, and Apollos. And what would Paul say about those three that we understand to be the we? Let's read and find out, beginning in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And by the way, it's interesting. He does not use the word who here, does he? I'll come back to that in a minute, but just kind of make a mental note. He's beginning to lay the groundwork for seeing himself, Peter and Apollos in the right light. So he says, what is Paul? What is, what is Apollos? We are servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters, they're one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So in these final few verses, Paul kind of makes sure we understand who the we is. And he uses four words and two metaphors and establishes one goal. Let me walk you through that quickly. The four words he uses to describe the we, in addition to the names of Peter, Paul, and Apollos, he uses the word servants first. You see that in verse five? It's the word for deacon. It's not the word for bond slave. Paul here is simply saying, we're just men who've received an assignment. So that's what's happening here. He's just saying, we, we've got a job to do. We're not anything special. We're just regular guys who've been given a job. That's more of a positive way to say it. We're servants, but then he kind of goes towards a negative way to say it in verse, what is it, seven? He begins by saying, so neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. So <laughs> I love this. I imagine Paul with a grin on his face in this verse. Like, guys, we're just servants. In fact, we're, we're really not anything. <laughs> Can you just kind of see that in your imagination? Now, the reason he says not anything is because this word anything is actually... Uh, more like an indefinite reference to somebody of importance. It's used several times in the New Testament to indicate that somebody importance in the room, so to speak. But because he uses the word neither, here's what he's saying. And this would be a legitimate translation. He who plants and he who waters, we're not anything important. That's what he's saying. And you could actually put the word somebody in there as well, or anyone. You know, if we're planting, if we're watering, we're not anyone important. So he's saying on one hand, we're servants. That's all we are. We just got an assignment. We're going to do our job. We're not anything important. And then he says, we are one. You see that in verse eight? 
And I love the way he uses this word to, to really show the Corinthians, you're trying to divide us, but you will not accomplish that. We're not going to be divided. We're one. We're a team. We have different roles, yes, different tasks, but we work as one. And that's why it says in verse 9, we are fellow workers. This word fellow workers is one word. It's the word from which we get our word synergy, working together. So Paul here says, hey, Corinthians, you may be campaigning for celebrities. You may be glamorizing us, but here's who we really are. We're just conduits for God. We're just servants. We're really not anything important at all. We're one in purpose and goal. We work for the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. He's really, and watch this church, hear this well. He's really lowering the status. He's not allowing them to raise them up to levels that he shouldn't be at. It's quite an interesting perspective from Paul, no doubt. So there's four words. There's two metaphors in play here. You see them pretty obviously. One's an agricultural metaphor. In other words, he uses the phrase, one plants, one waters. He does this several times, in fact. And from Iowa, we get that. Uh, you're, you're working in a field. You want it to produce a crop. And there's different people who have different roles or maybe the same person with different roles. So different things happen in the field. But the goal isn't to make a lot out of the out of the waterer or the planter. The goal is to get a crop, right? That's the goal, to produce fruit. He also uses the, the uh, metaphor of architecture by saying that they were a building. Notice two things he calls the church. He says the church is God's field. And by the way, we have a lot of folks who watch from the state of Georgia online. And uh, we lived there for eight years. I love this, that the word field there is the root word of the word Georgia, which actually means farm or field. And so there's something maybe special about Georgia, maybe? I don't know, maybe not. We won't go there. Um, but he says you're God's field or God's Georgia, and he says you're God's building. The word there is the word for house. So two metaphors here saying that, you know, in, in housing, construction, you're, you have finishers, you have framers. In farming, you have planters and waterers. The point is this, that it takes many different roles and tasks to accomplish the goal. And so, and so the goal is honest diligent effort. Paul knows he can't make the crop grow. He can only water. He can only plant. So he's saying here that, that we play our part in that sense. We plant, we water, but it's not anything that important because we don't really bring the growth. Only God brings the growth. So I love the way in these metaphors, he's placing himself in the proper position. Now, let me say a word to you about what the real goal here is, which I mentioned earlier, is just good, honest, diligent effort. Because when you read this, what you find is Paul uses the word labor and the word work to talk about his responsibility. And here's what his responsibility is not. It is not results and it is not rewards. Do you follow this in the text? Paul clearly says, I'm not responsible for the results and I'm not responsible for the rewards. God does both of those, I'm just responsible for the effort in the middle, so to speak. Now, that actually brings a smile to our face, doesn't it? It, it relieves us. We're like, that's good. But here's one of the problems I've noticed in, in church, in the you portion, that often we hear that in the wrong way and we stop really giving good, diligent, honest effort. We don't work at it. 
We don't labor at it. We have an unwarranted release of, of planting, of watering, of finishing, or framing, so to speak. And God does hold us responsible and require solid, diligent, worthwhile, honest effort. Remember, you can't control the results and you're not in charge of the rewards, but you are responsible for an honest, diligent effort. Now, be aware, if, when you give those kind of efforts, you will be misinterpreted, okay? I've experienced this a few times. Uh, sometimes even around here, folks will say, Todd, you sometimes seem too concerned about numbers. You're just trying to manufacture the results. Let me just be crystal clear here with you today. None of that is in my heart. I'm fully aware and glad to be aware. I don't control results or rewards. Amen, church? But here's what I... Good, hearty effort. Now, I found that most of the time I misinterpreted when I actually give numbers. Like um, I've said recently, I'd love to see our church baptize 50 people this year. I got a little kickback like, you shouldn't put a number on baptisms. You shouldn't do that. And I hear that well. I know the heart of those people. I mean, I don't think they're against folks getting baptized. But I just said back to them, you know, sometimes a, a, a goal helps us in our effort. I'm not, I'm not trying to produce a number. I'm not trying to force a result. But I am trying to put a little fire under our efforts. that make sense? Same thing with the who's your one. We've been encouraging you this year and even last year some. Man, have one person in mind that you're praying for every day. Write their name on a card. Give us part of that card. We'll put it in our office and we'll pray with you. We pass that wall every day in which there are names written of people who don't know Christ. I think that matters. We will never negotiate the priority of evangelism and disciple making in this church. So we're trying to find right, practical, biblical tools that, tools that help us stay motivated towards what? Effort. We can't make anybody saved. We're fully aware of that. We don't convert anyone, but we are responsible for effort to pray, to share the gospel, to train and equip. That's all we're after. It's the reason that every day at 4.35, an alarm goes off on my phone, and I take 10, 15 seconds just to pray for all those around me who are lost. Because John 4.35 says this, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white into harvest. And so we've been asking our church every day, 4.35, set alarm on your phone, and when it goes off, just, just pray, God, open my eyes to see lost people around me. And so some folks hear that and say, he's just trying to push for results. Or they just want bigger numbers. And I just want to clearly, transparently, and quite boldly say to you, I'm very content not to control results or rewards. You know that? It's actually a breath of fresh air to me. But I am, con um, I am committed to leading towards an honest, diligent, hearty effort. So if you still are mishearing that, man, I'd love to talk with you. Let's chat about it, okay? I think that's what Paul is aiming at here. Let's give a hearty Effort. Here's what he's really saying, too, from a theological perspective. Let me just kind of stay on this subject a little longer. Paul here is just kind of addressing what's known as the, the concept or principle of ordained means. He's just wording in a different way. Say those two words with me, ordained means. In other words, ordained means is the concept or the principle that it's always God who accomplishes things, but he uses things to accomplish it, such as, in this case, people. It was God who saved those Corinthians. It was God who would grow them, but he was using Peter and Paul and Apollos. 
The problem is the Corinthians were highlighting the people as perhaps the, the power instead of just the means. And so God always has an ordained means in play. He'll use things, he'll use people, he'll use processes, but make no mistake, the might behind the means is God. It's not you, it's God. And so we should take our role as, watch this, servants, not anything that important. We work together as one, we're fellow workers. It's like working in the field, or working in a building. We are just conduits to God's church. That's what leaders are. Now think about it. When you think about a conduit, perhaps it's one that carries water. No one really brings you their home or when they're thirsty or when they're needing some refreshment. They're not rejoicing over the pipe that carries the water, are they? They're thankful for what? The water. Amen, right? Same thing true about power. You're not concerned when you flip the switch that, oh man, I'm so glad that that wire, that power was contained in that conduit. That's a beautiful conduit right there. You're glad that the power is encased and gets to the light switch. You see, that's the attitude. We're just conduits. Let's not be the reason or the focus that, of the situation. It should be God's power and the gospel. And so Paul here really clarifies, he levels the playing field. Guys, you, the church, remember, we are just conduits. It's God who is the might behind the means. And he makes this very clear in the two middle verses of this final paragraph. He makes it very clear that God is the cause. Will you notice these final two verses with me? In fact, I've told you we have one take-home verse today, but we really, we really should have two. Uh, I think in all of our summer series, this is the only but God passage in which Paul doubles down on the irresistible interruption. I love this. I'm going to get so excited just teaching it to you. Look with me at verse six. Paul here says, once I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You see that? Past tense, by the way. Notice that God gave the growth. Verse seven. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God, and now present tense, who gives the growth. And I love the way he moves from but God to but only God. So it's not just that God has divinely, irresistibly interrupted immaturity with his incredible growth. Paul is saying there's only one person who can do that. It's God. So Corinthians, if you keep making much of man, you will never grow. Man is not the source of spiritual growth. Watch this. But God is, in fact, only God is. Isn't that beautiful? It's just uh, fantastic. Speaking of the past and present, let me just kind of plant my feet on that for just a moment more. I think what Paul's referring to is when the church was started and you first came to Christ and he was gathering a people from this city into himself, yes, it was God who made that happen. Peter, Paul, and Apollos, they were means, they were instruments. They weren't anything that important. They were used, yes, but God did that. And now he's saying years later, it's God who's going to get you out of this immaturity you're in, this baby-like behavior you're displaying. It's God's going to get you out of that. In other words, in both cases, then and now, it is God who motivates and moves us towards maturity. He births us. He grows us. Do you see why we say we can never make too much of God? but we could make too much of man. 
And when we make too much of man, we, we walk along the edge. We dabble in. We play with the fire of immaturity, divisiveness, jealousy, strife. But when we leave behind that baby-like lifestyle and embrace in a deep, wide focus on God, that's where the growth occurs. Now, just by way of outline, let me simply say to you, there are three things in this text that God owns. Well, make sure you get this, okay? Take your notes, just jot these down. According to verse five and six, God owns all tasks and roles. You see the phrase, how the Lord assigns to each? Paul and Apollos were the examples here. But the Lord assigned their task and their role. According to verses 6 and 7, God owns all growth. He doubles down here, like I said, both past and present. And according to verse 8, God owns all rewards. He's the one who um, assesses men's work, women's work, the servants' work, and he gives a reward. So the truth is, watch this, all people and processes are owned by God. He's the engine, the source of all growth. And in verse 23, will you look down there just briefly? I think Paul kind of ramps up the, the sense of God's authority and ownership. And here's the banner he waves now. He says, you are Christ and Christ is God's. There is nothing outside the ownership and authority of God, including your spiritual growth. So the more you make of God, the more you will grow. And so this six-but-God passage shows me something very liberating and freeing, that leaders are simply God's conduits to his church. He is the cause of the growth of the church and in the church. And without God, there can be no gospel progress collectively or movement towards maturity individually because God is the source and the cause of the growth. And because of that, let's be clear to say this, because growth in the church is God-caused, then effort by the leaders needs to be God-dependent. And credit from people needs to be God-directed. So what I'm making case for here is a very theocentric understanding of spiritual growth, that God is the cause and the source. And there are means, but he's the might so once again, let me just show you in the text, our nose are in the, uh, our, your nose is in the Bible. Let me show you how theocentric this portion is, this last paragraph where Paul is saying it's all about God. Look with me. I love this part. Verse 6, but God. Verse 7, but only God. Verse 9, three times God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building. And then verse 23, you are Christ and Christ is God's. There's no mistake here. Paul is saying that spiritual growth is tied to one engine, to one fuel. It's God. So I remind you again, church, for the sake of your spiritual soul, make much of God and less of man. Don't campaign for your favorite celebrity. Don't champion your favorite horizontal human person. Make much of God. Now, a bit of insight about spiritual growth begins to emerge here, doesn't it? It's this here. The higher 
and wider our view of God, the deeper our growth in God. Now give me every ear and every eye. Listen very carefully. The higher and wider our view of God, the deeper our growth in God. When you make much of God, you will see yourself mature in God. And could this be the reason that many Christians aren't growing? Because they're not making much of God. Now, perhaps your question is, well, how do I make much of God, Todd? That's a legitimate next question. There may be several answers to that. Can I give you one that's fundamental? Make much of the word of God. And I draw your attention back to a single word used in this context, which is the word fed. Paul seems to say to them, when I was with you and you first became a Christian, I fed you the milk stuff. And that's all you could take. But now you're still needing milk and you should have and need more deep truth. You should be wanting uh, fork and spoon stuff, right? Not just getting to suck from the bottle. We should be further along in our spiritual diet. So I think there's a, a strong, I might even use the word illusion or implication to the word of God here as the way to make much of God. So we make much of God's truth. We don't make a whole lot about, God, about man's opinions. Are you catching me now? Make much of God. Don't make much of man. And man, who doesn't need that truth in this cultural time right now when there are movements organizations and people arising on every front to give you their opinion. Now more than ever, man, keep your nose in the book and your feet on the gospel and let what God says and what God thinks matter most. Make much of him. And you'll do that by making much of his word. Now, while I'm there, I think I should just pragmatically ask you a question. If right now you're thinking, yeah, I, I really need to grow. I can sense my own immaturity. I can sense my own horizontal perspective too much. And just Here's a diagnostic tool to use. Is, is, do you spend more time in the Word or in social media? Now, I'm not against social media. I have accounts. I use them. Many of you follow me. I follow you. We're friends, whatever that means, right on some of these places and platforms. But if you find that your first draw is to your Twitter feed every morning, as opposed to a scriptural feed, or if you find that your first glance is to your Facebook, if you find that you're just more drawn to spending time in your social media world and very little time in God's word, it should not be surprising that you're not growing. I'm trying to be very plain and simple with you here. This is the kind of preaching I do to myself. You look in the mirror and have a hard conversation. If you think, man, I'm spending hours a day on the internet and I'm spending minutes a day in the Bible, okay, I know why I'm not growing. It's not hard to figure out. I'm asking you to have that same conversation with yourself because what we're doing is we're making much of man and his opinions and not much about God and his word. And I'm just bringing you some, some simple and yet often overlooked biblical truth this morning from these nine verses that God and his word are the source. They're the cause of our spiritual growth. So let us make 
much of God. And before I leave you with four quick reminders, can we just rehearse the gems we've unearthed today by reading our take-home verse one more time? This simple verse, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Let's all read it together, can we? Just to kind of uh, submit in our hearts who it is that really brings the growth to our life. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 together. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And there God is interrupting downward spirals towards more immaturity and a consistent wandering in immaturity. He's interrupting every bit of that with this life-changing perspective. Make much of me and my word. I'll see to it that you grow. Now, as we leave today, I want to give you everything I just said in about four sentences. Here's why. I want to give you something to kind of put in your pocket, four statements you can take with you so that this week when you are tempted to make too much of a man or a woman, make too much of your leaders who are just conduits, who aren't really that important after all. That felt good to say that, didn't it? Yeah, it does, by the way. We want to point you to see Christ and see Jesus and make much of God. When that temptation comes to make much of man, I want you to pull out one of these four what I call theocentric reminders. I'm just going to read them to you because I think they've been, they're going to state in a simple form what I've said already in the whole message. So here they are, four reminders, pocket them and use them this week. Number one, leaders are just serving God who assigned them their task. Remember, these are theocentric reminders, so God's going to be in the middle of every one of these. Leaders are serving God. Number two, it is God alone who causes the church to grow. God alone. Don't forget, he doubles down on that phrase twice. It's but God and but only God. Number three, here's the third theocentric reminder. In comparison with God, who gives the growth, church leaders are actually nothing. Yeah, and, and if you're a church leader, just say this several times this week. It'll be good for your spiritual health. You're just a servant. You're not anything that important. Just a, a fellow worker. Fourth theocentric reminder is this. God, not the Corinthians, is the one who assesses the workers and gives them the appropriate reward for their work. And you know why I like this one? I think in one sense, as you read verse 8, I think Paul is poking at them a bit and saying, hey, you think you can kind of decide who's the greatest and who isn't? Like this pecking order of apostles, you're campaigning for one and trying to put down another. But I just remind you, Corinthians, <clears throat> I just remind you, you're not the one who decides any of that. You can almost hear his, his impl implication that you're not the one who gives them their reward. It's God. He assigned their task. He'll give their reward. So again, it puts God's servants, the we, in the proper place. So these are four theocentric reminders aimed at this end, that this week God will interrupt moments or even a trajectory of your immaturity. When we want to focus too much on man, be divisive and quarrel and strife and stake a flag in someone's opinion, and I want to call you out of that baby-like lifestyle to one 
that makes much of God. And as we do that, man, God will make much of our growth. He'll mature us. He'll move us towards his purposes in an increasing fashion. May God do that to us today. May we know he is the might behind the means in our spiritual growth. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.